Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. The Guardian. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast with me, Sean Kane, me, Richard Lee, and me, Claire Armistead. This week, we talked to the graphic novelist Isabel Greenberg about the fantastical worlds created by the Brontes when they were young. And later in the show, we'll be talking about the International Booker Prize longlist. Isabel Greenberg burst onto the scene in 2011 when she won the Observer Cape Comic Prize with Love in a Very Cold Climate. This short story of a man from the North Pole and a woman from the South Pole who fall in love was one of the myths at the heart of her first graphic epic, The Encyclopedia of Early Earth. Her second graphic novel, 100 Nights of Hero, returned to the same mythical territory. But now Greenberg is back with something different, a graphic almost biography of the Brontes called Glass Town. So when she came to the studio, Richard began by asking why she wanted to ground herself in the rich soil of Haworth Moor. Well, I think I actually approached it. I approached it sort of from a someone who's got an interest in world building. I'd been a fan of the Brontes novels growing up and um, as an adult as well. But I didn't really know a lot about their juvenilia and the stuff they did when they were younger. And when I found out about it, I was sort of so intrigued from the perspective of someone who had invented an imaginary world themselves. You've done a bit of that already. Yeah, and that's kind of <laughs> How what, did they go about it? Yeah, yeah. so and the more I read about their sort of worlds, the more, you know, fascinated I was because they were just so... Um, I think people say it's, you know, the first kind of world building on that level. It's sort of Tolkien, like levels of massive world building and... Um, just so much of it and I was so you know fascinated that I hadn't I'd managed to you know grow up thinking I knew all about the Brontes and never having heard of this before yeah um, and so yeah the more I read about it the more I was like this would make an amazing graphic novel did you enjoy the process of writing with kind of something to hang on to some sort of some bits there that you could grab yeah I really did and I think um, I love doing research anyway and my books are always like fairly research heavy like I spend a lot of time kind of looking uh, investigating things before I start working anyway but in this case it was almost like I had like permission to just really go to town um I think what happened in the end is that I almost had too much um I got too attached to the source material and after a while like it got to the point where when I started writing I had to stop looking at it for a bit because there was so much good stuff 
and it just simply there was no way I could have done a straight adaptation of their juvenilia and no way that I would have wanted to and so I had to kind of be like okay put down the source material and take a step back because <laughs> I mean you really got right into it you became something of a specialist did you in their in their early work I would not like to say a specialist because there are a lot of actual specialists <laughs> I would say I'm an amateur fan but like <laughs> an enthusiast an enthusiast I think because I approached it as a as an amateur I guess as just an enthusiast it meant that whilst I loved the source material I didn't feel like I wasn't allowed to to mess around with it a bit and tweak it and play with it and um I think I wouldn't have felt like that about their novels I think if I was doing an adaptation in graphic novel of like Wuthering Heights or something I would have stuck pretty rigidly to the the plot um, and probably the dialogue, but because less people have read the juvenilia and also because they themselves never intended it to be published, I felt like it was kind of okay to play around with. You could have fun with it. I, mean, I guess for people who haven't read the juvenilia, mm. what's there? What is there? So there's two pretty big bodies of work. Um, one is set in the first sort of... so when they first started the four children working together and they created a world called Angria. Um, what kind of age were they? So they began when they were quite young um, and all four of them were still working on these worlds well into their teens and 20s. So, you know, it was like a, it wasn't like they sort of stopped writing it and started writing their novels. It really was something they kind of all carried with them, which was another thing I found like really fascinating. Um, but sort of after a few years, Emily and Anne broke away from Charlotte and Branwell and kind of set up their own rival world. Great division. <laughs> yeah, called Gondol, which was really cool. Um, but I chose to focus mostly on Angria and Glastown. Um, mainly because there's just more material available, whereas most of the gondol the gondol prose is mainly lost, and there's only poetry remaining. So I thought it was it was easier to work with the angrier Glastown stuff. Um, and, and this stuff is published, or you're going to see primary source material, or you can um, read most of the stories um, printed up nicely in sort of Penguin editions of it, all kind of. So you can read it. You can read it in print, but I have sort of looked. Um, it's I would per, I don't know how to read that kind of amazing Victorian script so I probably wouldn't have been able to follow if I was reading the original little It's very complicated is it? Um it's kind of it's just the writing's tiny so mm. a lot of the books were written um they wrote them for the so the world kind of originated from these four toys these this box of toy soldiers that um Branwell got given and they started by like making newspapers and books for the little soldiers yeah but and, and then so so but you started reading mostly about angrier yeah I read um so there's a um a very good if you want to kind of read if anyone wanted to read the juvenilia the first book I got was by a woman called Christine Alexander who compiles together like I think pretty much everything and a lot some of it's sort of like short stories that are fairly well kind of um well shaped um, and some of it is sort of more uh, scrappy bits of sort of fragments and things. And um, I think what I ended up doing is I picked the four characters that I, the sort of four or five characters that I liked the best. And then I loosely used their plot trajectories. And then from there, I just went and ahead and did my own thing. Um, but I, you know, I tried to sort of throw in sort of place names and, um, little anecdotes about other sort of background characters. So I hope that people who are familiar with the juvenilia, I hope that they'll 
A, forgive me for messing with it, but B, enjoy spotting, you know, lots of little things in there. That's my hope. As soon as Charles Wellesley appears amid the washed out blues and greys of Howarth Moor in your your book, it seems natural to tell the story of the Brontes and those imaginary worlds in a graphic novel. Was that split between the kind of colourful world that they'd imagined and the greys of the Victorian era, was that split straightforward for you right from the start? So there's a lot of diary entries from Charlotte, um, and there was one that particularly sort of stuck in my head where she refer- she sort of talks about the kind of, um, I can't quite remember the exact words, but something like the burning climbs of Glastown or something and the kind of grey reality of real life. And I so think... It was right there in, in that... Yeah, um, I can't remember the exact quotation, but it's something... She, there's some, some way she describes it and it really like was so visceral to me that like their imaginary world was so bright and technicolour and glorious that it must at times have made the reality you know their real world which was sort of like often I think quite hard and you know grey and They're literally grey literally I mean, all our kind of modern colours the the kind of the, the purples and so on the the, the colours the advertising we see around us they just didn't exist in that era no and you know it's England and rainy and there was just really a lot of really terrible weather um so yeah that that felt like a really important um thing to do visually but also it was really helpful in terms of helping the reader um kind of keep up with uh, my structure so there's three um plot strands that run alongside each other so you have Charlotte in the sort of present day talking to Charles who has stepped out of Glastown to um, kind of talk with her and they frame the narrative then you've got the flashbacks into Howarth into the past and how they created the books and I did those in a kind of uh, sort of sepia tones but then Glastown is is the one that is sort of bright and in full glorious yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the frame what was the thinking of um, framing it with Charlotte in I take it 1849 looking back on it all I couldn't stop imagining this this idea of how they had, you know, they'd created this world that was so vivid and so real. And then I couldn't sort of stop the, thinking about how l- alone she must have felt when her sort of siblings and collaborators had gone and left her. And, because of the most tragic story. Oh, it's so sad. And just the idea of these four siblings who were so close and she being the last one, the last one left. So that struck me as being very poignant. But also this idea of what, happens to an imaginary world when you grow up and you I guess outgrow it and does it you know does it sort of fall apart does it is it there like perfectly preserved waiting for you to step back into it and so I like the idea that Charles kind of steps out of the sort of crumbling ruins of Glastown um, to talk to Charlotte and remind her of what she's left behind there and and there's a kind of lure to it, a possibility of return, a rather dangerous yeah. possibility of return. Yeah, and so this idea that the imaginary world could be more enticing than reality, I think, is both fantastic, yeah, but also quite terrifying. And I think I wanted to, I think that in some ways is at the heart of the story, this idea that imagination can be quite dangerous. And there's there's diary entries that Charlotte has written where she describes um, she's being a teacher at a school and she's very, she doesn't like it. There's a bit where she describes seeing Zamorna um, kind of like striding boldly towards her, you know, I don't know, through the, she sees him through the classroom window or something. Out on the moor outside. Yeah, yeah, and she's like, you know, there's all these like school girls or whatever, like asking her mundane questions about French con- verb conjugations and stuff. But her mind is on like loftier things. 
um, more exciting things. Yeah, at least. more exciting <laughs> things, and just kind of, it must have been quite hard, I think, to exist in reality when your internal world was so like vivid. I invented imaginary world in my previous two books, but I don't think that I have any trouble distinguishing between reality and fiction. And I wouldn't want to exist in my own imaginary world, I don't think. But you don't find yourself like Charlotte being drawn by a scribble mania. Not, not in the same way. And I think, and I wondered if it's something that maybe you can't, it that just can't happen anymore because we live in a world that has so much more stimulation and so much more, more connectivity. And, yeah, and so, you know, yeah, that and that intrigued me. And I wondered, like, if there was, if it was something to do with the, I guess, um, the sort of isolation of their childhood the way that they they were so they were each other's main companions that had kind of forced this sort of incredibly um intense creativity i guess this kind of outpouring was powered by the boringness of everything around them you mean i like i i wonder if it yeah i think it must have been like you know maybe maybe more more we would create more things like that if we weren't distracted by you know like looking at the news on our phone or you know just so many different stimulations but if you only had your imagination to entertain you you'd probably have to really knuckle down and make it make something big yeah <laughs> and you say you you've allowed yourself a certain amount of license with material but what about the um what about the colonial thing which i was quite surprised to see how much there is about about conquest about mm. even i mean the character of cassia camina as well and yeah. his story how much of that was already in the juvenilia there was a lot of colonialism in the juvenilia and like a lot of it made for quite uncomfortable reading I think as a modern reader looking back on it I was like whoa you know and because they, they were children they were sort of children of the British Empire so they were really like into you know rule Britannia and conquest and they they're, they're repeating the kind of the stereotypes that were around them yeah and they were reading you know they read a lot of news and politics and they were they were quite Tory as little children and so a lot of the early juvenilia is very much like, you know, British soldiers arriving on a kind of fictionalised fantasy version of um, the shores of somewhere in Africa. That's sort of how they describe it mm. vaguely. And then basically taking over. and as a modern, Burning stuff, killing people. Yeah, pretty much. And they were quite fine with that. They were pretty blasé about it. Um, and, I, you know, it was really difficult because I didn't, I didn't feel like it was okay to leave that out. I couldn't pretend that they hadn't had those opinions and they hadn't written like that but equally it would have I didn't it just would have been very uncomfortable I couldn't have adapted it directly because readers people might have thought like that I was condoning <laughs> some sort of rampant return to 19th century colonialism um, which obviously I'm not um, so what I did in the end was I I made sure that it was in there so that you understood the, so that the readers understood that that's kind of how that's Glastown was founded on incredibly dubious moral not non-violent conquest absolutely yeah. yeah you know like yeah so, uh, so that's kind of was i needed to make sure that was at the heart of it but i also wanted to make sure that um i approached it as a modern as a contemporary writer you know so i changed the plot trajectories of several of the characters i made things more prominent you know, and something's less prominent. And the way and, I kind of... But just by of, focusing on Kasia as well. Yeah, and so, you know... Who, it, who's, the, who's, the, who's the son of an Ashanti king. Yeah, gets and he's a real up. character that yeah. they have. So that wasn't... I didn't invent that, but I did 
give him perhaps a little bit more um a bit more agency a bit yeah, more humanity than he had had in, we see in him being ignored by his by his adopted brother we see him yeah. rebelling against his against his against his upbringing in in his upbringing uprooted back in england yeah and when i you know because when i read the juvenilia his was one of the stories that really stuck with me um which yeah so that i wanted to include that and the way i kind of I put in a bit at the end where Charlotte is asking Charles about what's happened to her character since she's gone. And I liked the idea that I felt like if I kind of, if I gave the characters agency to do their own thing, you know, they've kind of gone out of Charlotte's control. They're, she set them going, but they're doing their own thing now. They've gone then, beyond those stereotypes. Yeah, then I could set it, I could, I could go beyond what Charlotte would have written and maybe let it be like what I would have written. So, um, but I, you know, I hope... I dealt with it sensitively because it was a real, it was something I thought about a lot. And it made me, when I started reading all their stuff, I was like, can I adapt this in good conscience? So it was, yeah, it was one of the things that I think was the hardest, actually. One of the things that the fans of the Juvenilia or, or people interested in the Juvenilia will, will see has changed the most. Yes, definitely. And I hope that they will understand why I made those changes. And it's not an adaptation, you know, a straight adaptation. It's it's something a bit different. A reworking. Um, yeah. <laughs> do you see bits of Angria in their novels? Yes. And, so, you know, you do. And people, um, I think it's sort of generally quite agreed that the character of Zamorna is a kind of proto-Mr. Rochester. Um, but what, always makes, what makes me laugh about Zamorna is he's just, he's just horrible. <laughs> and I just can't see that he has any redeeming qualities apart from that he's quite good looking. A great name too. And he's got a great name. But like, whereas Rochester does have redeeming qualities. I mean, as a modern reader, you read Mr. Rochester and you're like, oh gosh, really? <laughs> but you can see the appeal. Whereas Zamorna, I, was, I really struggled to understand what it was that Charlotte saw in him. And I preferred, I preferred Charles, um, who is Zamorna's brother. And Charlotte wrote, um, from his point of view the most um, so that's why it felt right that the frame narrative should be from the perspective of Charlotte and Charles talking to each other because um, he kind of is her um, he's her eyes and ears on the ground yeah, yeah and I sort of yeah I liked him a lot um, I thought he was he was very funny and he's kind of the way he chronicles the comings and goings in Glastown and that's why he didn't get um, his own story because I felt like he was this constant observer. He's almost like an extension of Charlotte. So so what's next? Are you going to be diving back into the 19th century again? I don't know. Um, I haven't really decided what I'm going to do next. I'm working at the moment on some um, new pieces of work, um, not, uh, not sort of full-length narrative stuff, just little pieces to go in an exhibition up at the Parsonage, the Monte Parsonage in the summer. Um, but I haven't started a new sort of big project yet. I'm still kind of just researching around different subjects, thinking about what my next um, venture might be. That was Isabel Greenberg. Glastown is published by Jonathan Cape in the UK and Abrams Books in the US. After the break, we'll be talking about the controversy surrounding this year's International Booker Prize long list. 
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Welcome back to the Guardian Books podcast. It is award season again. This time it is the International Booker Prize. This prize is awarded every year for a single book that is translated into English and published in the UK or Ireland. It is worth £50,000, which is split equally between author and translator, and it aims to encourage more publishing and reading of quality fiction from all over the world and to promote the work of translators. The long list was announced last Thursday. Claire, which book are you most excited about? Well, (laughs) I am very excited about The Discomfort of Evening, which is by this big new star of Dutch literature called Marika Lucas Rinveld. And um, it's translated by Michelle Hutchinson. Um, and um, it, it is, it's been sort of trumpeted as a trans novel. It is not a trans novel. There's nothing trans about the novel. But the author is um, not, they don't describe themselves as trans or gender non-binary, they, but they do say they're in between. And now the reason this is relevant is because um, Lucas came to prominence, first of all, as a poet with, mm. a, with a collection called Calf's Call and has become a massive star of the performance circuit. I mean, performs twice a week mm. in, in the Netherlands and also does stuff on ch- television chat shows and things. Wow. So they, but they have this sort of extraordinary, um, sort of luminous, um, um, tra- androgynous presence because they speak in an unbroken voice, but they, but they, very, they see themselves as a boy and I know this because I went to interview them and it's I think that the Dutch publishing but publishing industry is having a bit of trouble coming to terms <laughs> with this sort of slightly um, l- um, ludic really playful identity that mm. that they have and the, and the point about m- saying all this up front is that um, the both the Calf's Call, the poetry collection, and The Discomfort of Evening are prefaced on an accident which happened when um, Lucas was very, very young, when actually when they were three years old, when their brother, older brother, was killed in a skating accident. And in this case, they've they've recreated this um, accident as happening when um, to the, the narrator, who is 10 years old. And um, so... Is you know the, it immediately raises the question of is this autofiction and the you know the, the the sort of old trope is oh yeah your first novel is often the most autobiographical but this is not an autobiographical novel in any any more than Calf's Call the poetry collection which actually I've seen some provisionally trans, translated poems from it's not actually formally out in English mm-hmm. yet is autobiographical so their whole the whole point of this incredible new writer is that they're playing with identity at a very sort of visceral level having said which they were brought up on a farm in a rural area of of southern the the south of the Netherlands the novel is set on a dairy farm they would belong to a family of reformed um, from the reformed church very very god-fearing didn't only allow two television channels because of fear that um, 
bad words would come out of it. Wow. And and Lucas also grew up on a farm like that. So, um, but it, and it's a, a, a very shocking um, story of the disintegration of a family. But it's and it's written in this very um, pared back, p- blunt prose of the dairy farm because this child only has the vocabulary of God and and the dairy farm. So it's either it's shit or it's divine retribution. <laughs> And it's very, I mean, as you can gather, I'm, I'm, I think they're a real star. Mm-hmm. Great. Oh, and Richard, Samantha Schweblin. Uh, she's uh, she's uh, reached the uh, Booker Prize international list again, hasn't she? Because as Man Booker International as was, yeah. uh, she was uh, short, she was longlisted for Fever Dream mm-hmm. and then shortlisted for Mouthful of Birds. And now here she is with uh, Little Eyes, which is translated by Megan McDowell. Uh, it's terrific. Oh, it's just really, really good. Yeah. I mean, it's um, it's the the. the it's about interconnectedness, is that right? About people sort of floating in presences around the world into each other's homes. Yeah, kind of the conceit at the, at the heart of it is these kind of gadgets, uh, which are called kentucky, uh, in which it's, which you buy from a shop, and they're kind of shiny new tech things, so people buy them. And they're kind of like, uh, they're kind of motorised toys that can kind of move around and interact with you a little bit. They're, there's no kind of, there's no sound unit, but they can interact with you by kind of pointing to stuff or following hmm. you around and stuff. But inside each kentucky is another person. A user from somewhere else in the world. You know, you, there's no way of knowing who it's going to be before you turn it on. Mm. There's no, there's no kind of, uh, there's no kind of connection that's established beforehand. There's no consent given or, or asked for, and she then charts these kind of connections that develop and the way that these people, the people interact with these units in, uh, uh, in kind of friendly or unfriendly or frankly threatening ways, uh, from the Mexico to uh, Norway, from uh, from Africa to I mean it's it's the most extraordinary achievement. I mean she's spoken about her herself as feeling that she's a bit like a short story writer, and this mm-hmm. does feel like kind of uh, slices of uh, a story after a story after a story. But because they all have the same gadget at their heart, and because they're all concerned with the same questions of how much do you give away and how much do you reveal or how much do you keep private, it it. it comes together into this most extraordinary kind of unity. So it's a brilliant thing. She's, she's really interesting because she she absolutely um, is a writer who picks on um, the nightmares of current society. So it was about uh, environmental poisoning in, in Fever Dream. And this is about the ter- the fear of, of technology getting out of control. But, but she writes in a, it is in a sort of mythological style, isn't it? Or, or not a sort of hallucinatory what is it exactly? It's not so much that. It's, it's the, the, at the heart of this is not really the technology, but the people. The thing you take away from it when you've finished reading it is the people and the way that the interactions they have with these pieces of technology. It's, I mean, it's a very simple kind of idea for a gadget, but what it unlocks is this this behaviour which feels completely real and yet extraordinary at the same time. Hmm. It's, it's so interesting. So uh, to, to hear that there's actually another book on the long list. The, the book I'm going to talk about is very much about surveillance as well. Um, yeah, it's, as you say, a very current concern. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, but it's so funny because the the book uh, The Memory Police by Yoko Ogawa, the Japanese author, um, was published in '94. But it's only been translated into English quite recently by uh, Stephen Snyder um, and uh, is sort of one of several mammoth books on this uh, this long list. But it, it, it's interesting in that it's it's sort of tackling state surveillance, but without the technological aspect, I guess, like Schweblin is is doing. Um but it, it's such an interesting book, and it's it's, it's set on like an unnamed island, uh, and uh, where there is a sort of forgetting, uh, forgetfulness is kind of spreading like a disease. But um, in on this island, if you forget something, it actually physically disappears uh, in real life, um, and 
kind of checks out. Yeah, and uh, it, it's, it's sort of uh, the, uh, the narrator is unnamed as well, um, and uh, she lives on this. She's lived on this island her whole life. Um, her mother was uh, disappeared by this force called the Memory Police, who are like a sort of state, uh, sort of sanctioned force that enforce the uh, the the this sort of process of forgetting something so um they will come and uh say you forget that you about your cat your cat disappears but then you've got all this paraphernalia that you have from owning a cat like a little cat bed or you know food bowls for the cat the the memory police will come along and take that all away to sort of neaten up the uh the, the process of forgetting things um so it's such an interesting idea um and it's 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 very much about state surveillance but it's also about uh the nature of memory um and also uh the importance of having a voice because the unnamed narrator is a, a novelist and uh, throughout the book they are also writing books about uh people who have forgotten something um and so it all blends together into this really sort of interesting uh, kind of like a sort of like a thought experiment, but it's it's that it's that wonderful thing about Japanese writing. It's like very sparse and uh, but beautiful at the same time. Um, so I'm kind of gunning for Memory Police. <laughs> <laughs> but we, although we've been reading, obviously reading the novels, we've also been sort of investigating, haven't we, Shari? <laughs> yes. And we've got, we've done one little investigation of um, Red Dog, which is a, an Afrikaans novel um, public, uh, by uh, Willem Anka. Um, translated by Michael Heinz. I uh, apologies if I haven't exactly got the pronunciation right. Um, and that it, and it's it's it styles itself as a homage to um, Cormac McCarthy and Beckett among other mm. people. But a very smart young Times Literary Supplement reviewer who is also a Cormac McCarthy nut mm. spotted actually direct um, lifts from 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 uh, Blood Meridian, yeah. particularly from Blood Meridian. Yeah. What what, um, what do we think about that? Well, so it, it's a really interesting situation. And so it, it, George Berridge at the TLS, he spotted um, these direct lifts. And so he, he, he sort of, he lays out in this review that he wrote in July last year about um, uh, just the, the sort of nature of plagiarism and, you know, what is the line between homage and plagiarism? Um, and so there's a very interesting situation with this book in that in the Afrikaans uh, version, um, Anker has got an acknowledgements page, but he doesn't mention McCarthy at all. And then in the English version, he mentions McCarthy in the acknowledgements specifically uh, to say that um, he has he has taken some some passages. Well, I mean, presumably that's because his publishers would have felt nervous about yes. it. I would uh, one would assume. Well, so how it was explained to Berridge because he went to the publishers, the English publishers, when he'd read it and said, "Look, I've found this these paragraphs that are from Blood Meridian," and uh, it was explained to him that uh, the translator had not known, uh, had translated. So basically, Anker has taken passages from Blood Meridian, translated them into Afrikaans. Then uh, the translator who has taken the Afrikaans version and translated it into English has, has inevitably <laughs> sort of accidentally written some McCarthy so without realizing. Doesn't that say something show. amazing about McCarthy's prose? Yeah, yeah. And so, like, this is the the result basically. So um, here is a paragraph from the English translation of Red Dog, um, where he says uh, he writes a legion of abhorrence, hundreds of us, naked or half naked or garbed in antique vestments, almost biblical, or in animal hides and adornments of silk, or the leather of the Christians and the fragments of uniforms still stained with the blood of the previous owners. 
So in comparison, this is from a scene in Blood Meridian, a legion of horribles, hundreds in number, half naked or clad in the costumes, attic or biblical, or wardrobed out of a fevered dream, with the skins of animals and silk finery and pieces of uniform still tracked with the blood of prior owners. Like, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Yeah. And so it's been filtered through two languages and it's still... Remains it was noticeable to yeah. a reader that, that was familiar with McCarthy. He could spot it. But they're, they're also, it functions on the level of vocabulary, wasn't, doesn't it? Yes. So you spotted pizzle yes, coming up. I was going through both books and just sort of noticed in Red Dog that he uses the word pizzle quite a lot uh, in reference to uh, male genitalia. And so when I noticed that, I was like, that's just, it's leaping out. And so I looked up in Blood Meridian. Pizzle's used quite a lot. So, the, so, <laughs> so the mystery that we have not yet solved is whether pizzle was, was in sort of um, italics used in the original or whether mm. the translator has happened upon pizzle because we we know that, or we, we take it on trust, that the translator didn't know no, exactly. the connection with, with um, Cormac McCarthy. And I, pizzle is not exactly a common a, a word in common usage. Yes, and so the way that, that Anker writes about it in his acknowledgements page, um, he uh, has a little thing at the end where he says if the reader happens to quote stumble across the remains of McCarthy or Beckett should be treated as quote the homage of a scoundrel um, so the, the scoundrel is is um, Conrad de Bois who's the central character who was who was a sort of nomadic polygamist renegade who terrorized um, the, the Cape Colony during mm. the early part of the 19th century but and, and so he, so it's like it's almost like Boyce is saying, I'm a scoundrel. Mm. But the novelist is, is playing with the idea of the novelist being a scoundrel. Well, this is <laughs> the sure. thing. And, and, and it's, all this, it's, it's like coming back to the very basics of it. It's like, is it fine because it's art? I, I couldn't do this in my job. I couldn't just take whole chunks of other people's writing and then publish it as my own. But because it's art, maybe he can and it... Maybe he can't. I don't know. Richard's making a face of me. <laughs> no, I, I think it's cheating, isn't it, at I some level? I think it is. Just to grab chunks of somebody else's well, I stuff. I think it's cheating to not acknowledge it. And the fact of the matter is he certainly 100% did not acknowledge McCarthy at all in the Afrikaans version. I mean, this is an interesting um, issue in a way, isn't it? The, the, the fact that he could have got away with it. Because this novel's been out a while in, yes. in South Africa. Nobody, as far as we know, we phoned up some bookshop friends of ours in, in Cape Town. And nobody seems to have noticed mm. But why would they? It's in a different language. Oh, yeah, exactly. uh, but then once it comes into English, then suddenly the jeopardy you know, it goes up because everybody, all those Cormac McCarthy nuts like George yeah. are going to be seizing on it. But talking of scoundrels, <laughs> that, we have to now talk about Michelle Welbeck, who's, oh, yes. who's one of the other big stars on this list. Richard, you have views on <laughs> Welbeck, don't you? Uh, well, I haven't read Serotonin, but to be honest, I don't really want to. The last one I read was Soumission, which is frankly just the same old shtick. And so you read it be... in, in French? Do you read him in French or English? Uh, I can't remember whether I read Soumission in... I read a bit of it in French and then some of it in English. I can't remember exactly why. Um, but it's it seems to be the same old thing again. It's some old guy who's slightly annoying in some ways and is, you know... Doesn't like uh, his mum. Yeah, doesn't like his mum, <laughs> exactly. And who Who's, who's, there's some there's some sort of uh, sort of paper thin female characters who happen to have a lot of sex and mm. there's some sort of contemporary issue this time it's the gilet jaune well you know well done Michel Welbeck yeah, for noticing he, the gilet he, jaune but, but but actually he 
foresaw the gilets jaunes because the gilets jaunes when this first came out were not the massive force they are now so give him a break yeah yeah t- <laughs> terrific well. marvelous he's got his finger on the pulse again of the, the events shaping society but he's not actually that interested it seems to me mm. certainly wasn't in soumission it sounds like he's not doing it again he certainly doesn't seem that interested in actually writing a decent a decent book there's <laughs> a lovely well. there's a lovely line in, in james lasden's um, review of it he said here and there welbeck relaxes from his effortful brand maintenance as a purveyor of smut to the intelligentsia and muses on non-sexual aspects of human life such as gastronomy or gentrification. I want to I have purveyor that. of smut on my gravestone. I mean, I, the thing is, but the trouble is, he, you know, you know that Welbeck will like that. that oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, totally. a, that's a compliment. That's the thing. But that's the game he's playing and he's yeah. sold an awful lot of books off the back of it. Yeah, yeah but, we, but we have also to acknowledge that, you know, we, we haven't mentioned his translator, who's Sean Whiteside, who's a very, very distinguished, serious translator. Mm. Um, and interestingly, there are, there's a relationship between the, the, the translators on this yeah. list. Sure, it turns out that Sean Whiteside taught Sophie Hughes, who is the translator or translator of one novel and co-translator of another on this yes. list. And there's a bit of a love fest going on <laughs> on Twitter, <laughs> which is lovely. very sweet. But it's also, I mean, it's just a mark partly of how small the translation market is, mm. that, that it's sort of, you know, the teacher's... The, the sort of foundational teachers of this generation are still at the, in their prime while the, the young generation are coming up. Well, that, that's and that's sort of part of the joy of this prize is, uh, you know, realising, you, know, you know, just how much work that goes into these. I mean, particularly the, um, what was mentioned, uh, uh, the judges actually made particular note of um, there's uh, Gabriela Cabezon's Camaras, uh, The Adventures of China Iron, which is a feminist retelling of Argentina's foundational gaucho epic, Martin Fierro. It's been translated by two translators, uh, Iona McIntyre and Fiona McIntosh. Um, and the judges said uh, specifically that this book must have posed an enormous challenge to the translators, uh, one they have faced with inventiveness and poise. Um, and it's just a, it's a wonderful prize, I think, because it is split equally between author and translator, just thinking about how much work that goes into all these books. But also it does give you a sense of what different literary cultures are doing to try and address the crossroads that we're at. We're, we are at a crossroads. There's a lot of uh, metafiction on this list, isn't mm. there? A lot of people playing with the whole form of the novel. Is it a novel if it's a series of interlinked short stories, basically, which is one issue that comes up? Mm. Um, how do you tell history, you know, radical revisions of history, whether it's feminist revision, as in the case of um, the, the Adventures of China Iron or, or Red Dog, which is sort of imagining um, a part of South African history as a Cormac McCarthy um, epic? Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, we'll see. We'll see who uh, who gets uh, makes the shortlist, uh, which will be announced on the second of April, and then the winner will be announced on nineteenth of May. And that's all for this week. Next week, we'll be talking to Ben Aronovich about the latest book in his best-selling Rivers of London series, False Value. If you have any thoughts about this week's episode, get in touch on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or on the podcast page. And you can always subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. But for now, from me, Sean Kane. Me, Richard Lee. Me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Esther Opoku-Jenny. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us.